Or there's a genealogy at the beginning of Matthew 1 where it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, etc., etc., and it goes on and gives the genealogy. And if you're anything like me, you often wonder, why do they even have the genealogy in here? I mean, you understand that the genealogy's in there, at least in part because they're telling you the family line of Jesus through whom he came, but what you're often wondering, if you're anything like me, is why all the detail? And, and, and if you're anything like me, you may use genealogies as good readings to take a nap, right? <laughs> sort of put you out. That's sort of the kind part you skim over. And you don't spend a lot of time in the genealogy. And, and there's something about this genealogy in Matthew that I want you to understand, other than just it gives us the physical descent from Abraham to Christ, although that's extremely important. Something else that this genealogy does that tells us about the faithfulness of God to us. This particular one in Matthew 1 talks about God's loyalty to his covenant promise to shower us with kindness and grace. And it does this by pointing to a whole long list of sinners, a whole long list of surprising people through whom Jesus the Messiah came. I want you to do is, I want you to look with me at Matthew 1, and then we're going to go to Ruth 4 from there. But I want to start in Matthew 1, and I want you to look with me at these verses briefly. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1 and just move through it rather rapidly and then jump over to Ruth 4. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You ought to just want to stop right there. Wait a minute. Why is there a woman listed in a genealogy? And not only a woman listed in a genealogy, but a woman who dressed up and played the prostitute in order to participate in an illicit affair with her father-in-law. Incestuous affair with her father-in-law. Right there in the middle of the genealogy. Verse 4, or finishing that, sorry, verse 3, And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, another prostitute, another female, a Gentile, listed in the genealogy of a messianic king of the Jews. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, another woman, a Gentile woman. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Doesn't even mention Bathsheba's name. She's the wife of the man David murdered after he committed adultery with her. And she's listed again. And what I want you to notice is that with these four women being listed, it's already an unusual sort of genealogy because they generally only include men. But to heighten the oddity of this particular genealogy, some of these women are Gentile women. And to even go further than that, all of these women, I want you to hear this, all of these women went through tremendous sufferings, trials, all of them. 
and in some cases, sin, in order to get to the point where they bared the son who's named here. And I point this out because I think the author's shouting out something to us about God's faithfulness to his covenant promise, his promise to shower us with kindness, even through difficult circumstances. He's shouting out to us that God does not even waste one tear, not one bad set of circumstances. He's always working all things together for the good of his people, always. But what I want to do is I want to focus on one of these people, one of these women. I want to focus on Ruth. I just want to take her out of the equation and focus just in on Ruth. Who is Ruth, and why does Ruth show up in this genealogy? Who is she? Why does she show up in this genealogy? What do we learn from Ruth's appearance in this genealogy? And I think there are three lessons that we learn, three lessons about God's loving kindness and his graciousness his continuous work to show kindness to people that we learn through Ruth showing up. Ruth is a woman who appears in a book called Ruth. It's a short book that took place during the reign of the judges, during the time in which judges were leading in Israel, and really there was no king, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's where the events of Ruth take place in that historical time period approximately 3,100 years ago. And Ruth is a book that was read every year. I don't know if you guys know this. Ruth was read every year at Pentecost, every year during the Feast of Pentecost. So you know what the Feast of Pentecost is? The Feast of Pentecost is a feast that occurs about 40 days after Passover. Passover is when we normally celebrate Easter in the Christian calendar. That's when Passover happens in the Jewish calendar. About 40 days after, that's Pentecost. That's when they would read the book of Ruth. And the reason they'd read it every year is because David, the king, was installed at Pentecost as king. And Ruth is part of the lineage of David. So they would read this story to talk about God's faithfulness to get to King David. And it, let me just kind of summarize it briefly because it's an amazing story, really, of, of two women and one man. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And, and let me just sort of summarize what's happened thus far if you, if you haven't been here the last few weeks. The story starts off with Naomi and her husband Elimelech. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons decide to leave the land of Bethlehem, the house of bread. And the reason they want to leave the land is because there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land and they are fearful because of the famine in their land, that they won't have any food. And rather than going to God's law, as it said, and repenting, and looking to the Lord for provision, they actually violate God's law, run off into a pagan country, the country of Moab, and look to provide for themselves. They try to take matters into their own hands. And they say, we're just going to be there for a short time. It's just a sojourn. But the author tells us that they were there for over 10 years, that Naomi's sons marry, or excuse me, Naomi's sons married two different women who were Moabite women. Now they've married pagan women. Naomi's husband dies. Naomi's two sons then die. And now Naomi is a woman left destitute with no husband and no sons in a foreign land. And she's destitute. That all happens in the first five verses of the book. 
And the question that has to be crying out to her is, how is God going to help Naomi? And what ends up happening? How is he going to restore her? What's he going to do? She's walked off in sin with her husband. What's he going to do to bring her back? And what we see happen is this. God brings back bread to Bethlehem. He brings back, he ends the famine. And Naomi hears of God's kindness and she's at the bottom of the barrel and what she does, she says, I'm gonna go pursue him, uh, pursue the Lord. I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna turn back to him. I'm gonna trust in him and I'm gonna go back to Bethlehem and I know God's gonna provide. And I'm gonna stop taking matters into my own hands. And so she heads back to the Lord, back to her home. And on the way back, her two daughters want to come with her. Their names are Ruth and Orpah. And they say, we want to go with you. And Naomi says to him, listen, my daughters, if you come with me, I have no sons for you to marry. And I'm not pregnant. And even if I were pregnant, are you going to really wait the amount of time it takes for them to grow up to be full-grown men to marry you? You're not going to do that. You don't want to come with me. If you're going to come with me, you've got to count the cost. Because if you come with me, all you're going to get is the Lord. And you may lose everything else. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. Go back to your families where they can take care of you. And you can find husbands. And you can bear children. And you won't be destitute the rest of your life. Because if you're a woman in that time period, to choose to go forward with Naomi means to choose to go forward in destitution. It means to choose a life in which you may never get married and never have children, which means you will never have a husband to take care of you who can own land, and you will never have a son who can take care of you who can own land. You will be destitute. And Orpah says, you know what? You're right. I'm going back to my people, going back to my family's house, and turns and goes back. Ruth looks at Naomi and says, I want to trust in the Lord, your Lord, and I want to care for you. And so I'll give up everything to go with you. I'll give up everything because I, I trust the Lord. And so she does. And she goes with her. And they head back to Bethlehem. And when they arrive, Naomi, there's a stir in the town because Naomi's come back. And here's Ruth with her. And the town is all up in a stir, and they're wondering what's going on. And Naomi tells them, listen, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. He's given me a hard providence, difficult circumstances, a rough life. I've lost my husband. I've lost both of my sons. Now I have Ruth, my daughter-in-law, who's here to try to help care for me. But I went away from here full, and I have returned here empty. I have nothing left. I can trust only the Lord. And so Ruth says, listen, Naomi, I'm going to care for you. And one of the provisions that they made in that culture when you were poor is that if the people who own land couldn't glean the outside of the land, they couldn't harvest that, so that you could go out as a poor person and glean the external parts of the field, glean from them and take some crops so you could eat if you were poor. And that was one of the provisions. And so Ruth said to Naomi, you're older, I'm going to care for you, I will go out and I will gather some barley, and I'll come back and make sure we're taken care of. So she goes to a field, and the author or the narrator of the story in chapter 2 tells us she happened to happen upon a field. And he's making a point. In Ruth's mind, she just wandered sort of ha by happenstance into this field. But the narrator is telling us God is doing something here. She walked into the field of Boaz. Who's Boaz? He's a relative. Why does that matter? Because he can claim 
the right of the kinsman redeemer, he can take care of Ruth and Naomi and buy back their land. And he falls for Ruth. The first time he sees her, he thinks she's beautiful. He's blown away by her character. He can't believe her trust in the Lord. And he himself is a godly man. And so he starts to pile her up with all kinds of barley. Here, don't just get the outside of the field. Let me give you some more, right? Take this home. Show your mother-in-law this. So she goes home with all of this barley. In fact, 30 pounds of it she carries home. When she gets home, Naomi's wondering, who took caught, you know, whose eye did you catch? What man took care of you? In whose field did you go today? And she says, I went into the field of Boaz. And Naomi goes, that's a relative. He can be our kinsman redeemer. What does that mean? A kinsman redeemer is a relative who was allowed to marry a woman whose husband has died, and when he marries her, provide a child for her, and he, in doing that, can buy back the family's land so that it belongs again to the family. He can redeem her, and he can redeem the family. He can redeem the family's land. And Naomi knows this. She says, listen, Ruth, we're going to take matters into our own hands again. Naomi hasn't yet learned her lesson like we would like to think, and we're all that way, aren't we? And Naomi says, here's, here's what we're going to do. I want you to put on some perfume. I want you to take a bath. I want you to get dressed real nice. And then what I want you to do is put a cloak on so nobody can see you. And at night, tonight, he's going to be on the threshing room floor. That's where Boaz is going to be. He's going to be working hard all day. He's going to have something to eat. He's going to have something to drink. And then he's going to get under the covers on the threshing floor, and it's dark, and he's going to go to sleep. Here's what you do. Get yourself all beautified, perfumed up. Run in there. When he's fallen asleep, pull up the edge of the covers, uncover his legs, get under the covers with him, and just wait, he'll tell you what to do next. And Ruth says, okay, I'll do it. And so she goes. She gets under the covers, and Boaz awakes, and Boaz sees her, and Boaz graciously rebukes her, and Boaz cares for her, and Boaz promises to take care of her and marry her. And Boaz also promises to take care of Naomi. And he says, listen, I want you to go home and I want to protect your reputation and I want to care for you because that's the kind of guy Boaz was. And so Boaz says, I want you to go home and I want you to take this to Naomi. Take 60 pounds of barley with you and I want you to tell Naomi she will not go empty-handed. Why does that matter? Because when Naomi came back, what did she say? I went away full and I came back empty. And Boaz says, listen, tell her to trust the Lord. She won't be empty-handed. He's going to provide through me. That's how he's going to do it. But I want you to know something. There is a kinsman redeemer who's closer, a closer relative than me. He has first rights to the land and to you. So I'm going to go to him and ask him if he wants it, if he wants to claim his rights before I take them. And if he doesn't, I'll marry you. Now that's where we pick up in Ruth chapter four. So if you look there at Ruth four, that's where Boaz picks up. He's going to find this other kinsman redeemer. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. 
So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you, besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So here's what he says. Sit down in front of the town elders, in front of the townspeople, and make an offer to buy Naomi's land. Because if you redeem it, then it's yours. But if you don't want to redeem it, then let me know because I'm happy to redeem it. And the guy's first answer, of course, is I'll redeem it. So he says, and he said, I will redeem it. Verse five. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And by the way, he realizes you acquire Naomi. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Look at the exchange that's happening here. What's happening here is that Boaz is saying, I need you to be aware that if you take this, it's going to come at a cost to you. If you choose to be their redeemer, if you choose to be God's instrument of showing loving kindness and graciousness to them, if you choose to be the answer to Naomi's prayer from chapter one, that God's hesed, his loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness would be upon Ruth's life. If you choose to be that guy, it's gonna cost you. If you're gonna stand in the place of their redeemer, it's gonna cost you something. And what does the guy say? No way, not interested. If I can get this land, it's a good deal. But if I gotta take these two women with it, not interested, that's gonna cost me. But Boaz says, I'm willing to pay the cost. Even if it costs me, I'll pay it to redeem you. I'll pay it to redeem you. See, here, here's the point I'm driving at. God is faithful. God is faithful to show loving kindness to his people, even at great, great cost to himself. And you see that in the picture of Boaz. Boaz is a picture of God's faithfulness to show loving kindness to his people, even at great cost to himself. He's a picture, ultimately, of Jesus. Look at what it goes on and says, verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off a sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off a sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz says, I'm willing to care for Ruth and Naomi even at great cost to myself. I'm going to be their kinsman redeemer. See, how is he a picture of God and his faithfulness to love us at great cost to himself? How is he a picture? 
Because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Jesus is the one, as Hebrews 2 says, comes as our brother, cord in the flesh. He comes as a man, and he lives among us, the eternal son of God, the one who existed as the second person of the Trinity from all eternity. He came as a man, humiliated himself, and walked among us. Why? As one of us. Because the Father loved us and wanted to send him. Why? Because we're sinners. Because we as men and women have failed to be the kind of men and women who can be in a relationship with God. He's not our father in our natural state. He's our enemy. He's the one who is angry with us for our sin because we have violated his law over and over and over again. But he loves us. And he wants to save us. And he wants to offer forgiveness to us. And he wants to be gracious to us. And so he sends Jesus. Jesus comes and lives as a man in our place perfectly. And then he goes to the cross and pays our penalty on the cross. The penalty due for our sin. And then he resurrects from the dead, conquering sin and death. So that if we believe in him, we're forgiven for our sins. We're redeemed. He's our redeemer. He's the one who came and paid at great cost to himself so that we could be saved. And Boaz is just a picture of that. So that we can be forgiven. He did this because of his love for us. That's what the Father did. That's why 1 John 4, 9-10 through 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. And see, if it's true that God loves us like this, then we've got to put away any notions of this kind of stingy God. We've got to put away this idea that he's just waiting for us to slip up so that he can hit us over the head with some kind of hammer. Listen to the logic of Romans 8, 31, and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Do you hear the logic there? Here's the divine logic. If he loved us enough that he didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave his beloved, holy, perfect, eternal son, what is more than that? How will he not also show his kindness and love in all things to us? And that's the good news we celebrate at Christmas. At Christmas every year we celebrate. Why? We celebrate the divine logic of Romans 8.32. God gave us the gift of his son, born in a manger in Bethlehem. And if he gave us him, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? That's what we rejoice in in Christmas. It's something to rejoice in even if you're suffering right now. Even if you're suffering right now. But you might respond to me, well, 
but it doesn't seem like God is really for me right now. Sure doesn't seem that way. It seems like my hell is uh, my life is more like hell right now. Which moves me to the second point. God is always working for the good of his people. Always working for the good of his people, even when our lives are a mess. Even when that mess is because of our own sin. Did you guys hear that? Did you get a hold of that? He's always working for the good of his people in all things. Even when our lives are a mess, even when that mess is caused by our own sin. Look with me at, at um, Ruth 4, verse 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez. All good so far. Listen to the next part. Whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, if you're listening to this blessing, you better be stopped in your tracks because you're getting blessed. I'm going to take this woman as my wife. And they say to you, may your offspring be like the offspring that Tamar bore to Judah. Hmm, Tamar, dressed up as a prostitute, slept with her father-in-law, brought about an incestuous child named Perez. Hmm, may our children be like, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Is that really a blessing? Sounds like a complete mess. So why is that the blessing that's given? And then why does this woman Tamar show up again in Matthew 1? See, this story, this story of Tamar and Judah is the story of Boaz's own genealogy. Do you know that? In other words, these are the great, 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 great of Boaz. Tamar gave birth to Perez through the terribly incestuous act of her father-in-law Judah. But Boaz and his family, Boaz and his family are the picture of how God redeems even the most difficult circumstances, aren't they? Because look at this godly man, Boaz who's come as a result of that sinful act between Tamar and Judah. See, God is redeeming even the most difficult circumstances of our lives, even when we don't see how. Often in a manner in which we don't see how. Think of it. If the incest of Tamar and Judah did not happen, you wouldn't have Boaz. And if you didn't have Boaz... Ruth wouldn't have been redeemed. And if she wasn't redeemed, you wouldn't have had their son Obed, who was the grandfather of the king we know as David. And if they wouldn't have been born, you would never have gotten to Jesus. See, what Tamar couldn't have known, what Tamar couldn't have known is that that sin, that horrible suffering that she endured and her family endured because of the sin between her and Judah brought the blessing of Boaz and eventually brought the blessing of King David and eventually brought the blessing of the Christ. God redeemed it. So here's a question. Do you see what the author's doing there? He's pointing out that God's working all things together for the good of his people. 
He's pointing out that God is faithful to show kindness to his people. Even when we're in circumstances that are really bad and we can't see how he could possibly be faithful to show kindness to us in this. He's saying that God didn't waste the sin of Judah in sleeping with his daughter-in-law Tamar. He didn't waste it. God didn't waste the sin of Tamar in tempting Judah into the sin because of her desperation to have a child. And God will work relentlessly to keep his promise to show kindness to his people through his Messiah. And you may not see the full picture now of how God is working for your good and the good of his people in your lifetime, but that doesn't mean it isn't happening. They didn't see it. We read about it now looking back. But let's see it develop further. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, nice colloquialism, and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And the redeemer here is now the grandson. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. Shocking in that culture to say. And she's given birth to him. See, your grandson's going to be a blessing to you because he's going to take care of you, Naomi. God has provided for you. Just like he promised he would. And more than that, Naomi, in the blessing, embedded in the blessing, which we don't even know we're saying, and you don't even know you're hearing, is this blessing is this man's name will be great in Israel. Because his name is Obed. And his son is Jesse. And his son is David the king. Through whom we receive the Christ. Verse, 17, or verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. This is interesting. The author lets us know that as the book concludes that Naomi came back to Bethlehem empty-handed. And the author gives us a picture of her holding her redeemer, her grandson, in her hands. She's now got her hands full with the grandchild. <clears throat> Verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. See, God has shown favor to Naomi. He's gracious and kind to her and Ruth. Even though Naomi was in all kinds of sin. But then look how the book concludes. It's got the most strange ending. Look at this. It's a weird way to end a novel. If you came to the end of money novels and read this, you might be thrown. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Why does it end with the genealogy? Because the narrator is telling us that something greater is happening than God just showing kindness to Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. Naomi's saying this, or excuse me, the narrator is saying there's something bigger than Naomi and Ruth and Boaz can see that's going on here. He's certainly showing them kindness, but there's even a bigger picture that's being drawn for us to see. 
He's letting us see what they didn't know. He's telling us that all the events that happened in their lives were not wasted, not one. All the good circumstances, all the bad circumstances, all the sin, all the repentance. It was all leading to a greater purpose. It was leading to the coming of King David. See, here's the logic of the story. Naomi, if Naomi doesn't leave the land in sin, then there is no Ruth who comes along as her daughter-in-law. And if Naomi doesn't repent and turn to the land, return to the land, then there is no Ruth meeting Boaz, their kinsman redeemer. And if Ruth doesn't meet Boaz, then there is no, Nobe, no Obed. And if there is no Obed, then there is no King David. And if there is no King David, there is no Christ. See what's happening with this author? Naomi and Elimelech's sin. Naomi and Elimelech's sin and tragedy and suffering led to the coming of the great king of Israel. God redeemed all of it. God brought it all about for the good of his people. And now what happens in Matthew 1 is Matthew steps in. And Matthew says, listen, I'm going to tell you something even the narrator of Ruth didn't know. The narrator of Ruth didn't know that the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz were actually not just leading to the coming of King David, but the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And if you go to Matthew 1, this little genealogy you read at the end of Ruth, it's right there in Matthew 1. See, Matthew, this is why Matthew thinks it's important to remind us of Ruth in his genealogy in chapter 1. See, just carry it forward. If not for Naomi's sin, we would not have Ruth. And if not for the sin of Tamar and Judah, we would not have Boaz. And if not for Boaz and Ruth, we would not have Obed, King David, or his promised offspring, Jesus of Nazareth. See, God is always faithful to work all things together for the good of his people. He's faithful to keep his promises to be good to us. And it's because of that overarching picture of how God works, of how God, what God is or who God is, that Paul can say in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Ruth is just a picture of that. But I'd be remiss if I stopped here. Let me finish with this. Because there's one more point that we see in Ruth. And that's this and throughout the gospel story, that God's kindness, God's kindness, his loving kindness, is always and only received through faith, through faith in his Messiah, Jesus, our Redeemer. See, what happens with Naomi before she, when she sees the kindness of God the first time, she repents, she trusts, she returns to the Lord. She trusts his promise. What happens with Ruth? She comes and says, I want to trust the Lord as well. And Boaz can say of her in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, you're a woman who has taken refuge under the wings of the Lord. You trust in him. Boaz trusts in the Lord. And they see the loving kindness of God as a result. They experience it. It's theirs. They were looking forward to his promise to send a Messiah. And we, this is the privileged place we have in history, we actually get to look back every year 
They were waiting. When's he going to come? When's he going to come? When's he going to come? Guess what? He's come. And every year we come together and we celebrate that he's come. And if you're a believer in Christ, we do that as a culture. Most people don't even know why. They don't even love him, trust him, look to him. If you're a believer in Christ, you gather every week to do what? Celebrate. He's come. He's come and he's accomplished everything. He paid for our sin on the cross and he rose from the dead and we celebrate that and we look forward to him coming back and making all things new permanently. So here's a question. Are you looking to him and resting in him? Is that you? Does that describe you this Christmas? Are you looking to him and resting him? And you might ask me, well, what do I need to do? Do you hear that question? What do I need to do? You, you don't do anything. You trust. You, and trusting means you receive. You rest. Stop trying to do anything. Take a, dig, a deep breath and rest in Jesus as your hope and salvation. Receive his kindness. But like Naomi told Ruth and Orpah, I want to tell you, count the cost. See, when you rest in him, when he redeems you, when Jesus redeems you, your life is no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. Your life belongs to him. But what you need to know is the same thing Ruth also knew. No matter what the cost you pay this side of eternity, it's worth the riches of his kindness that you'll receive. It's worth it all. So, so here's what I want to challenge you to do. If you're a believer, when we take communion together, I want you to take time to reflect on the gift that Jesus is to us and God's kindness and the fact that God promises to be faithful to show his loving kindness and grace to you throughout your life, to always be seeking your good. And if he's given you Jesus, he's given you this great gift, the greatest gift you could possibly receive, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? You ought to be celebrating that not only at communion, but this whole time of your Christmas celebration. You ought to be thinking about that. If you're not a believer, if you're not someone who trusts in him, if you're not someone who's looking to him and resting in him, then, then what I want to do is call you to repentance and faith. I want you to know that Jesus will save you right now if you look to him in faith. Right now. And I want you just to turn to him and trust him and ask him to, and he will. He will. You need him. You don't get to the loving kindness and faithfulness of God this way without him. It's only offered through him. There is no other kinsman redeemer. He is it. So you trust in him as Ruth did. Or you go your own way as Orpah did. And you return to your gods. But just so you know, all the idols of your heart and your life will disappoint you. And they will break your heart time and time again. And they will bring upon you everlasting condemnation. But Jesus, your kinsman redeemer, will never disappoint you, will never leave you or forsake you, and will bring you God's everlasting loving kindness. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would show us great kindness in your son, Jesus.
that we would be a people who look to him. And we know that you already have, for those of us who believe, Father, but we so often forget it. We pray that we'd be a people who remember, who remember your kindness to us in our Redeemer, Jesus. Who walk with him and rejoice in him and are thankful for him. Father, we pray for those who don't know you. Father, we pray that you would turn them to you. They would repent. They would look to you in faith. They would trust you and know that you'll save them, that you'll be kind to them. Father, you want to be gracious to them. We pray that you would work in them, give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Give them a new heart that they might look to your son in faith. Father, we pray for the the church body that's here, that we would be a people this Christmas who recognize the great gift of your son, that he is the picture, he is the picture of your grace, of your loving kindness, that it's because of Jesus, it's because we look to him, that we can rejoice and celebrate and be thankful because if you've given us your own son, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.